started a series back in November, and we started looking at the Christmas story, and how the Christmas story doesn't just start with a, a stable in Bethlehem. The Christmas story started a long, long time before that. That for us to really remember the Christmas story well, we need to go the whole way back to, to Genesis, when there was this moment where humanity chose sin over a holy and gracious and loving God, and then there was this promise of redemption from that, from that mess. And so the promise was given to Abraham, and we looked at that. We looked at how there would be a redeemer, a rescuer to come, and that rescuer is going to come through the family line of Abraham. We looked at the prophets and how they were used by God to retell that, to, to give warnings to people, to say, this is what faithfulness to God looks like. And that was their job. That was their responsibility to cry out faithfulness, be faithful. Then we looked at John the Baptist and how there was, there was 400 years of silence, no prophet speaking, and all of a sudden the, the silence gets broken by this, this, this crazy guy that, that resembles the prophet Elijah, and he's the first prophet in the New Testament. And he, he's crying out, prepare the way for the Lord. His, his, his job was to prepare people's hearts to hear the message of redemption that came through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, John the Baptist. Then we looked at the angels and the shepherds and, and their response, the, the shepherds' response to the angelic choir announcing this birth. We looked at how the angels had seen this whole thing play out from afar. They saw it from a completely different angle than we did. And then they tell this to the shepherds, and the shepherds leave their flock, and they run into the city to see their Redeemer. Then we looked at Joseph. Joseph hears from God on two occasions, gets visited by an angel, and instantaneously obeys. Denying human logic at that moment, just knowing that having faith in God meant that he needed to respond to those words. We talked about how he and Mary had something in common in that they must have known the Word of God. They must have known the story and the promises of God because when those promises were laid out to them, even in their shock, awe, and at times disbelief, they did believe and they did act on it. The only way they could have obeyed at the level they did is if they knew the Word of God. So then we went from Joseph into Mary's life, and we looked at her, her meekness and yet her joy. We looked at how she broke into song and how her song so reflective of someone who obviously understands the heart of God. On Christmas Eve, if you were here, we just looked at the person of Jesus. We looked at how he came to redeem the world. We, we looked at how he's worthy. He's worthy to be the one who breaks the seal and opens the scroll and reads on the day of judgment that, this is, that the process of complete and total redemption of a whole people group, all of humanity that has received Christ as their Savior, being taken into glory in that moment. And there's only one worthy to break the seal and open the scroll, and it's Jesus came to us as a baby and lived as a man and died a perfect sacrifice for our sins and then three days later is raised to life. Takes a few days here on earth to give some final, some final instructions to meet with some of his followers and then ascends into heaven. And that is where we pick up the story today. Uh, I want to give a quick plug to say that next week we're going to start a new series going through the book of Acts. We're going to take our time going through it and it's going to coincide with the class on Sunday morning. So a lot of what you're hearing on Sunday morning is going to be, we're going to hear that from like a topical standpoint, and then we're going to look in the Word of God and see how those two, th those two things match up. But we're going to look at how the church got started. This is the end of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The church starts, and they start after the moment we're going to look at today. If you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, that's where we're going to be today. It's on page 576 in the Bible in front of you. I saw a picture online yesterday that said, uh, the Grinch showed up to steal Christmas and found all the decorations already taken down. I don't know if anyone in this room does it, so I'm not going to ask you for a raise of hands, but I personally...
can't completely wrap my head around the person who takes all their Christmas decorations down the day after Christmas. It's like there's a, there's a month's long buildup to this holiday, and then the second it's over, we want it gone from our memory. My mom, uh, we didn't do Christmas with my family until the 26th, and on that morning, my mom had to run to Walmart. And she said at her Walmart, I haven't been to any Walmart since Christmas, praise Jesus, and, uh, and, uh, but my mom said at the Walmart that she normally goes to, the day after Christmas, she was there at like 9 o'clock in the morning, all the Christmas decorations were moved, all the Christmas stuff was in a clearance section, and they had a brand new display up of Valentine's Day stuff. So there's this like huge buildup to Christmas, and then when it's over, it's just like we're done with you. We wash our hands of thee, Christmas. We want nothing to do with you. Bah humbug. Put it all away, right? I don't know what drives that. And if you're in this room and you, you're, you're that way, then I feel sorry for you. But, uh, but I love Christmas, and I love all that. I get bummed out when the guy that's two streets away from me that is like the Clark Griswold of Hatboro, and his house has lights in the grass, like perfect lines down his whole house. Every inch of his house is covered in lights. Every tree, it's on Manor Avenue if you get a chance to check it out. It is unbelievable, and I get bummed out every year that he turns his lights off. I also don't offer to help him clean them up, but that's a different story. <clears throat> There's something about it. To me, it's just magical, and I think now that I have kids, it's even better. If Megan and I could, we'd keep our tree up all year. Uh, it's always like this grievous process to take it down, not just because it's messy, but just because it's a really neat season of the year. The house looks different. There's a, a different vibe. Uh, and I, I don't really like it when that goes away. And if I can be completely honest, I don't think the Advent season was ever meant to go away. I think that buildup that we feel to Christmas, what we really tried hard to be intentional with as a church in the buildup to Christmas, I don't think that feeling that we get and that excited anticipation that we get and this buildup to our Savior coming as a baby should ever escape us. I think that's where we should reside all the time, in this, in this eager anticipation of an amazing moment about to happen. It's like Ed McMahon told you he's about to knock on your door and hand you the balloons and the big cardboard check, but you don't know when, right? You probably wouldn't go many places if you knew it was about to happen. Those of you who are too young to know who Ed McMahon is, Google him. But that's, I think, how we're supposed to live our lives. No, we don't have to keep our stockings up all year. No, we don't have to keep a pine tree alive inside our living room all year, but but I think the, the symbolism of Christmas and the advent and the buildup, like the reason the angels erupted with praise was because they, they knew it was coming. And then whenever it finally did happen, they got unleashed and the only thing they could do was sing praises to a holy God, to an audience of people who they had known needed this redemption for so long and they finally got it. And I think that's sort of how we're supposed to live our lives, in this eager anticipation. So, but for us, we're Americans, and we just move on to the next thing, right? That's how we're wired. Nick Foles comes in one game, does a good job. All of a sudden, we need to trade our all-star quarterback. We need to get rid of him. We'll keep Nick Foles. The Eagles lose two games, and automatically they're terrible. The coach needs fired. I'm a Steelers fan. We're the worst. The Steelers lose to the Raiders, and automatically Tomlin needs fired. Rossberger needs to retire. We need to cut this person. We need, to get this, we need to scrap the whole thing, start over. And then they beat the Patriots, and like, man, that team's awesome. That coach is so good. Rossberger's an MVP. That's, that's how a fan base is. Aren't we fickle people? So that's what we do, though. We move on to the next thing. And I think that mindset is what hinders us actively making disciples. Because we're excited about making disciples in the moment we become a disciple. But as soon as the next big thing is dangled in front of our face, we lose sight of the main thing, and we focus on the temporal thing. 
That could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. Maybe you're stressed because you got this big thing going on at work that, you know, it's inventory season and you've got to stay late or, or uh, any one number of things. So we get stressed out and then we focus on that one thing and that's the only thing we can focus our time and energy on and that's all we can think about. And when we do that, making disciples doesn't seem all that important. It's not even on our top five because we've got so much other stuff to get done. So I think I'm using the picture of Christmas and the Advent season to to drill into what I think the heart of the gospel is. And it's that this story needs retold. We have a few brief glimpses of Jesus' last few minutes on earth, the last few days that he had on earth. We have a, a short glimpses of it. It's not a real detailed description. I would say that the last 40 days that God that is in flesh in the form of Jesus on earth, walking around in and, and, and resurrected form, we have about as much information about where he went and what he did as we do of him growing up. We don't know all the ins and outs. We don't know where he went. We, don't, we probably, if we thought about it, came up with, we could probably come up with more questions than answers. But this is a pretty detailed description. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read the whole chapter. Now, Matthew chapter 28 is split up into three sections. And there's three things we need to remember before we read this, while we're reading it, and after we read it. Here's the three things. If you're writing down notes, write these down. These are the three things that we have to remember going into a new year if we're going to take serious the call to be a disciple and make disciples. And that's really why we're here. One, the resurrection happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. Two, Satan wants to convince you that it didn't. And three, Jesus said, go tell this story. The resurrection happened. Satan wants to convince you that it didn't. And Jesus said, go tell this story. Now, if you would, read along with me. Follow along. You can start at verse 1 of Matthew 28. Again, that's page 576. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
There's three sections here. One is from verse 1 to verse 10. And in verse 1 to verse 10, we learn that the resurrection happened. It happened. Jesus came. He lived as a man. He lived a sinless life. He died, and he rose again. We were talking to Meg's parents, and uh, Meg had a, a conversation with her mom and dad about what they did at their church. Meg's dad is a pastor also, and, and what they did at their church for Christmas Eve. And they, they decided to scrap some of their normal planning, and they did more roundtable discussions about the different aspects of the gospel about the build-up to Christmas and why all this was necessary. And one of the people in their church made a comment to them uh, before this moment that's sort of one of the things that led to them make this decision. He said, I, I am a believer. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that I am saved, but I just don't know why it had to go down the way it went down. Why, why does Jesus have to be born as a baby and then live a sinless life and then die why does he have to die? Why does blood have to be spilled? Why did he have to die? Couldn't, couldn't this have gone down a different way? Why was all of that aspect of it important? And I think those are important questions to ask. If you're honest, maybe you've asked those questions and have found sufficient answers. Maybe you're sitting here and you still don't have answers to those questions. I'm going to try to answer that as quickly and concisely as I can. In Hebrews chapter 9, it starts off in verse 11 talking about how there's redemption through the blood of Christ. And when you get to verse 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Under the law, almost everything is cleansed by the shedding of blood, and there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. If you go back to the Old Testament, the system was set up that, there, that you would have a pure and spotless lamb, a sacrifice that symbolized your best, and it would be spotless and it would be clean, and you would have the priest uh, symbolically take your sin from you and lay it and place it on the lamb, and then the lamb would be put on the altar in your place. Now, that was to satisfy God being a, uh, a just and holy God and not being able to reside in the same place as sin. Now, that was a temporary sacrifice because, of course, you were going to sin, and, of course, you were going to have to do that again. You were going to have to take the sins that you had committed and lay them on the lamb, and the lamb was going to have to be the symbolic sacrifice for your sin. It's almost like how our justice system works is that, that if there's a crime, a horrendous crime that is committed and you are found guilty of it, there is a punishment for said crime. If you murder someone and they find out about it, you will be tried for that. And if you're convicted of that crime, there is a punishment for that. So it's, it's, it's similar in its nature that sin always has to have some kind of of a discipline that comes along with it because sin and a holy God can't reside in the same place. So how can God walk with us and talk with us and live with us and care uh, for us in a way that's close-knit like it was in the garden, hand-in-hand hand, walking through the garden? How can God, a holy God who has already made it very clear that He and sin cannot reside in the same place, how can He compromise who He is just to soothe our feelings or our lack of complete understanding of a system. So for God to do anything but what He's already said is compromising who He is. And if He does that one little bit, He's not who He says He is. So God, being God, has to hold true to His word to be able to prove Himself worthy, even though He, he is already worthy. He wins our hearts. So we had to have an atoning sacrifice, an all-atoning sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus was born as a baby, raised by sinners, imperfect parents, lived into adulthood, and never once broke any of God's laws. Never once sinned. Now that is so hard to believe, isn't it? When you think about you doing it, 
leave here and don't sin for the 10 minutes it takes you to get from here to 10 minutes down the road. That in and of itself is is an amazing feat for a human being. A 10-minute span without sin. But the Bible tells us we're actually born into sin. Our parents are sinners and we're born into it. Now, we do consciously choose sin as we get older. But regardless, we're born into a fallen world and we make our choices and we make our sinful decisions and then we have to go somewhere to get atonement for that so that we can have a relationship with our Creator God. So in steps our intercessor and he lives a perfect life. And it says in Hebrews that without the spilling of blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus steps in on our behalf and does what we couldn't do for ourselves. And he, and he takes the blow and he takes the death and he takes the pain and he takes the torment. And when he breathes his last breath here on earth in his fleshly form, he does what none of us were ever able to do or could ever do. He becomes the all-atoning sacrifice, that pure, spotless lamb from the Old Testament. But this time, it's not just one person. It's all of humanity, past, present, and future. We have an offering that is sufficient to cover our sins through the blood shed of Jesus Christ. Now, as amazing as that is, if that's where the story ended, it would not be enough. Because that just means that sin was conquered. It doesn't really do much for us other than it conquered sin. There had to be life to come along with it. Because sin leads to death. That's what sin does. And sin was thrown upon the Son of God and He died, carrying the weight of all humanity's sin. If that's where the story ended then our sin is still our sin. Because <laughs> it's just some guy that died on a cross. For this to be legit, for this to be true hope, for this to be something that offered us eternal hope, it had to be more than that. It had to be just not conquering sin, but conquering death. And three days into this, Jesus takes in a breath in human form, and when he does, he comes out of that tomb in a resurrected state, completely conquering sin. And because of that moment, we have access back to a holy God because now sin and death have been defeated by a holy God. So the resurrection definitely happened. It happened. And I know we weren't there, we weren't witnesses to it, personally, so sometimes seeing is believing, that's what we want to believe, but that's, that's not necessarily true because God has given us an amazing gift called faith, and we read this, and we read His Word, and we see that it's true, it is true, and we have faith, and we believe that, and we have a relationship back to our Creator God. The, the evidence to support that it's true is what happens next. One of the main pieces of evidence that this is true and that it's terrifying for those who don't believe it to realize that it's true is how the holy priests, the high priests, the religious community that put him on that cross reacts to it after this moment. So the first thing that we have to remember is that the resurrection did indeed happen. We see that in verses 1 through 10. But in verses 11 through 15, we see the worst of humanity play out yet again. While the disciples were on their way, some of the guards who had passed out like they were dead when they saw the angel finally come to make their way back to the high priest and I'm sure, feeling pretty ashamed of themselves, have to admit that this, uh, this whole thing that went down with the earthquake and the sun disappearing and this guy dying and everyone saying he was son of God and even the, our own uh, 
leader of the guard, the centurion, admitting that he was the son of God as soon as he died and all this crazy stuff that happened when this dude died and he said he was the son of God. Well, let me tell you something, high priest. There was an angel came, rolled that stone away and Jesus wasn't in there. We saw it. He's alive. What do you want us to do now? And the high priests do what humans do. They tried to figure out a way out of their mess. So they come up with, they go into their elder meeting, first of all. I love that because unhealthy churches always have horrible elder meetings. And they, they go into this, this little council room and they come up with their horrible idea that, 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 that misguided religious people come up with. And they come out with this plan and say, okay, here's what's going to happen. We don't want anyone to ever know that we could potentially ever make a bad decision. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you this substantial sum of money, hush money. And here's what you're going to tell people. You're going to tell people that you fell asleep on the job, and when you did, the disciples came, rolled the stone away, and stole the body of Jesus. And if it gets back to your boss, the governor, that this happened, and he gets mad about it, we'll cover for you. We'll play play whatever card we need to play to make sure that you don't get in any trouble. Take the money, tell that story. Verse 15, so they took the money and did as they were told. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day, Matthew's gospel says. This story has been filtered and cycling around the Jews to this day. Now, Matthew wrote this a long, long time ago but he could have written it yesterday. He could have written it yesterday because how many people in our society don't believe this happened? So just as effective as the truth was at getting the gospel to us today where we're sitting and listening to the word of God being preached in freedom in this church today, just as effective as the disciples were of getting truth out to a society where they were just as effective getting the lies out to society. You go back to Genesis 3, God gives these commands, and it's it's a simple one. We've talked about it here before, probably a hundred times. That God puts the tree in the garden and says, the only way that you're going to be able to express love back to a holy God who has given you everything in abundance in this garden is to just not eat off of that tree. Because there are things that you're not meant to know. There are things you're not meant to see. And by eating off of that tree, it's going to lead to death. God's off of the scene. At least that's what they think. And in comes the serpent. And he whispers lies. And he takes that truth. And he distorts it. Just enough to get these two people to believe it. Then they eat the fruit. And we know the rest of the story. That's exactly what is happening here today. And it was people who were given the charge of living out the Word of God and equipping people with the Word of God that did it. The religious leaders are the ones that did it. If I ask for a show of hands of you saying either you or someone you know have been completely burned and wounded by the church in America at some point in your life, every hand in this room would go up. And it's because when we focus on religion more than we focus on Jesus, we start coming up with lies to protect our own kingdoms. And then when we go back into our secret meetings... We come up with a solution that whenever we bring that solution out to a whole group of people, we just want everyone to believe that we didn't do anything wrong because we could never do anything wrong. I mean, we're the leaders of the church. That's exactly what these guys did. Not only that, they paid them off. There was enough evidence for them to believe that this was true. And they're terrified of admitting that they just put the Messiah to death. Because by admitting that, their whole kingdom that they build up for themselves crumbles underneath them. It crumbles underneath them. And they're not willing to let it go. Because when you spend your whole life building a false kingdom, if somebody takes that kingdom from you or there's a threat of it, you will do everything to protect it. 
Jesus came to say, any kingdom that is built on anything other than me and my Father, the Holy Spirit, any kingdom that isn't that will crumble. It will fall. It's built on sand. It will be destroyed. But if you build your life on this truth, me, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, then nothing will be able to shake that kingdom. And the religious community got a hold of this, and they knew it happened. They knew it. They knew they had murdered the Messiah, and they knew that it didn't work. So they decide to come up with a substantial amount of money from the church coffers to pay these guys off, and it worked. It worked. If you've ever doubted the resurrection, if you've ever said, hey, listen, I read an article that said this wasn't true, or I read a book that said this, it's just more evidence that that moment in history worked and that these lies have been spread to this day, just like Matthew says. Not just amongst the Jews, amongst all of humanity, Satan getting in your ears and distorting God's truth just enough to get you to believe a lie instead of the truth. You realize the only time Jesus raised his voice or did aggressive things was when he was speaking to or interacting with religious people. And his most tender moments were reserved for what society said was the worst of the worst. And the thing that pushed Jesus to the brink was when people who claimed to love his father, claimed to love him, didn't live it out. And we're distorting truth and selling people a lie for their own profit. Satan hates this truth, guys. Satan hates this story. He hates this truth. I'll give him the credit that's due him, though. As much as it pains me to say it, Satan is really good at what he does. He's the best at it. I mean, he's, he's the prince of, of, of the powers of this world. He is, he is the, the, the king and the rulers of darkness for a reason. See, in the garden, he knew he lost. As soon as the lie got told, and as soon as humanity gave over to the lie, Satan knew he lost. It says in, in Genesis chapter 3, whenever the curse is being handed down, it says that, uh, that a fruit will come from the woman that will, that will crush the head of the serpent. If you've ever seen the, the Passion of the Christ, for me it's very, very, very difficult to watch. I think I've only been able to sit through it twice. But if you haven't seen it, I'd recommend watching it. There's a scene in it where Jesus is in the garden and he's praying and he's weeping and there's, there's blood coming from his brow because he's so distraught. And in the meantime, there's this giant snake that's coming in and, and it's, it's coming right towards him. And it's just symbolism of Satan coming and tempting to despair in that moment. Because he's praying this prayer, this beautiful prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that says, Father, if there's any other way for you to restore your relationship with humanity besides me having to walk through this, please, let's go that route. But if this is it, if this is what I need to do, then your will be done and I will do it. That's his prayer in the garden. And Satan sees a potential for weakness and he tries to pounce in that moment. And it's symbolized in the snake slithering up to Jesus. And as he finishes his prayer, he stands up and stomps on the head of that snake. And then the rest of the scenes play out where he gets, he gets beaten and he gets put on the cross. But as this buildup while he's praying and he stands up and he has this resolute, okay, this is what my father needs me to do. This is what I've been commanded to do, and I'm going to do it. And when he does it, he stomps his heel down on that snake and crushes its head. And that's the only part of the movie, other than the very end, when he comes out of the tomb, where I wanted to cheer. You see, Satan looks for potential weaknesses 
and then he pounces. So let me just warn you, as you start a new year, and maybe you start making goals where you say, I'm going to read the Bible through in a year, or I'm going to be better about reading my Bible, or I'm going to know God's Word better, I'm going to attend church more, and all those things are good. I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to eat healthier, whatever decisions you make in the next 24 to 48 hours, as far as what 2019 is going to look like for you, as soon as there's a potential for weakness, Satan is going to pounce on it. Not a little bit, a lot. Because in in 1 Peter 5.8, it tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your belief system. He wants to destroy your hope. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to destroy it. He doesn't want you happy unless your happiness is fueled by sin. He definitely doesn't want you joyful because joy is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. Happiness is rooted in emotionals, the emotions of a human being. And Satan might want you to feel happy, especially if your happiness is fueled by sin. He's going to look for it. He's going to look for an opportunity, and he's going to look to destroy you. Now, that might not be a devastating thing for some of us. Actually, for most of us, Satan's going to try to destroy us by undermining the bedrock of what we say our life is built on. So if we say we are believers in Jesus, and we don't read God's Word, know God's Word, spend time in God's Word trying to know the heart of God, then we will have a shaky foundation and Satan will find the crack and he will work on it. The city of Jerusalem was taken by the Babylonians because they had figured out that even though it was a very fortified city, the weakest part of the city was down where all of the human waste and animal waste was taken out by the dung gate. It was the part where the soldiers didn't really guard all that well. And so they built uh, basically a battering ram on a hinge, and they stood at that spot, and the, Israels, the Israelites, they, they looked down over the wall at that spot, and they scoffed at them because no one could get into the most fortified city, especially why would you pick that spot? That's an unclean spot. And for days, the Babylonians took that timber and hit that same spot on the wall while they just got laughed and jeered at by the Jews inside that city. Day and night, day and night, day and night, the Babylonians hit what they believed to be the weakest spot in the city. And one day, the timber came in and busted through the brick, and then they hit it a few more times, and there was enough to get a couple men in there, and then a couple more, and then like a sea They just went in, and as other men went in and started to destroy the city from the inside out, they kept ramming that wall until it got a gaping hole. And eventually, they went around and they tore down every wall around the city of Jerusalem, and they said, it's ours. And the people were taken into captivity. That's the exact same thing Satan wants to do to you. He's going to find your weakest spot, and he's going to hit you in it over and over and over and over and over again. And if you believe that you are above attack, then you find, stand on your wall and scoff at your enemy. Let him alone, and he will break through. But if you want your foundation fortified, you better build it on something that's eternal. And that's the Word of God and faith in a God who saves you. If your theology is weak, Satan will f- exploit it. If theology is rock solid, He won't have anywhere to work, so he'll find something else. So Satan will start with a weak theology, and a weak theology will lead you to doubt God. If you camp out on doubting God long enough, you'll just walk away from him. Satan hates this truth, and he'll use any means necessary, even religious people, to derail God's work if he can. But Jesus steps in, verse 16. We've already seen the heartbreak of what happens when someone's theology or belief in Jesus is taken because they give it away. Judas did that. He took a sum of money to turn Jesus over, and because of that, he was so distraught that he committed suicide. And that's why it's sad when we read verse 16 at the beginning because it tells us that now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. 
we have to stop and pause there and grieve for a minute because one of the 12 turned his life over to sin and it eventually gave him so much despair that he only thought that he thought the best thing to do would be to end his life. So now there's 11. They go to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. We know that that's Thomas because we get uh, read about it in the other Gospels. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He starts with that because you can't go tell humanity to go do something until, unless you have the authority to say it, right? If you're a parent, I'm sure you have said these words before, because I said so, right? If you're a kid, I'm sure you've heard those words. I find myself saying things like, hey, I'm the parent here. You're the kid. So Jesus, not because he has to, but because he wants to, because he chooses to, he lets them know that he has the authority to command what he's about to command. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There's nowhere my domain doesn't hold the authority to say what I'm about to say. Go, therefore. Now, I have the authority to tell you what to do in heaven and on earth. You cannot escape the bounds of my authority, Jesus says. So, therefore, go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And I'm with you until the day this all ends. So what Jesus is saying is, you're standing here because you believe it. I want you to live it. And then I want you to go tell it. Essentially, that's where our whole mission statement for our church comes from. Discover, disciple, deliver. We take in this truth. We realize how foundational it is. We, we realize how life transformational it is. We receive Jesus as our Savior. And Lord, we grow in that as disciples. And then we take that out to the world that we're in. We go. We go. We go with a specific job in mind. In 2 Corinthians, we get told what our job is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 20, it says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God, making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul's talking about the, the ministry of reconciliation here. He's talking about how Christ died for our sins, how Christ died to reconcile us back to His Father. And if we're living in that truth, that's what the therefore is there for in verse 20. Therefore, if we're living in the truth that we've been redeemed and reconciled to a holy God, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of Christ. We represent Christ. I think I've used this analogy before, but if you were to go to another country and see an ambassador from the United States in that country, that person represents the United States no matter where he's at, no matter what he does. He is under the microscope all the time. And no matter where he goes, no matter what he does, he is to represent the country that has sent him well. He is to be an ambassador to the values that the country that sent him holds dearest to. So an ambassador of the United States to another country would want to be someone who tries to champion freedom, who tries to champion American values, and to be an asset and a resource. If you, as an American, were in that country and ran into problems, you'd have someone that you knew you could go to because he's an ambassador. He represents you there. Now, we don't have 
the time this morning to break this all down. But what I do know is this. When you receive Christ as your Savior, when you understand that you are a sinner, lost and headed towards death, and that Jesus has died to be the all-atoning sacrifice for your sins, and you receive that gift of salvation, you no longer are a citizen of your current country. You are a citizen of heaven. That becomes your primary citizenship, and you're holding a temporary visa to live in America. So now you are an ambassador of Christ here. You are to represent His kingdom here well. That the values you hold to, the values you live out, the things that are of utmost importance to you reflect your eternal citizenship in heaven. If it's not important in heaven, it's not the end-all, be-all to you here. That's how our citizenship is to work out. Now, what does Jesus say is the absolute most important thing we are to do as His ambassadors here on earth? Go make disciples. If you call yourself a disciple and you've never made a disciple, you're not a disciple. Because disciples make disciples. If you haven't intentionally shared your faith with other people, are you really a disciple of Jesus? If, if you say that Jesus is your king and you haven't spoken of his existence to people that you spend your life with that you know don't love him or know him, are you his disciple? If you've lived where you lived for longer than 20 minutes and you can't say the names of the people that live near you, are you really trying to make disciples? See, I say all that because I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of waking up in the morning and making my whole day all about me and losing sight of the fact that I am an ambassador to Christ. I have been left here for a purpose, and that is to be an ambassador to the kingdom of God. Not just on Sunday mornings. Not, not just in an office where I hold myself up and study His Word so that I can regurgitate it back to you on Sundays. All the time. No matter where I'm at. No matter what I'm doing. So if we are going to be the people of God, that means that we're saying we are His disciples, and disciples make disciples. If you're not making disciples, you're not a disciple. I, I say that with deep conviction, that if we are not a church who makes disciples, then what are we? We're a group of people that get together and sing and listen to a guy ramble for 40 minutes. 45. Because disciples always make disciples. If that wasn't true, we wouldn't be here because those 11 took that message and they died making disciples. They were all martyred making disciples. They were all put to death because they took this seriously. That most likely won't be your fate. You might not be the most popular guy or woman. You might not be uh, the person that uh, everyone thinks is the coolest in the room. But I guarantee you one thing. When you stand before your Creator on the Day of Judgment, he, wouldn't, he won't be able to care less about how popular you were on earth or how nice you were to your neighbors or how, 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 how good of ethics you practiced at work. Those aren't the things that he'll look at. He'll want to know. He'll want to call. He'll, he'll want to he'll interact with you on that day. I'm guessing I've ever been there, never seen it. But I think Jesus in that moment is going to want to know how did you make disciples? As a parent or as an employer, have you ever looked at someone and you say something like, I gave you one job to do, one job, and you couldn't even do that? Whatever it is. Maybe you say, hey, listen, before I get back from work, I want the dishes washed or, or something simple like that. And, and, and you come back and it's not done. You say, what did you do while I was gone? What did you do? I asked you to do one thing, and you couldn't do it. 
I asked you, there's a sink full of dishes. I asked you to wash them. You couldn't wash the dishes. You were home by yourself for three hours. You couldn't wash the dishes. I'm telling you this because it's happened in my house before. My wife telling me, I mean, that I didn't wash the dishes. Just, just to fill in any potential gaps you might have. Do you realize that's, that's going to be the judgment day conversation? In, some, in one way, shape, or form, it's going to come across, I gave you one job to do, go make disciples. You lived in this truth. You said it was the foundational bedrock of your life. Now go and make disciples. And once those people come to know me, you instruct them, you disciple them, and as they grow, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on repeat. So I gave you one job to do. How'd you do? I gave you 82 years or 65 years or 17 years or however many years. I gave them all to you. How did you do in making disciples? Because if you're sitting here today and you believe that the resurrection happened, then you can skip past that middle part. You can skip past 11 through 15. You know you'll be lied to, but you don't believe the lie, so you don't have to give it a whole lot of credence. And you can skip forward to 16 when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you obviously didn't believe the lie that's being spread, that, you, that the body got stolen. You're standing here looking at me. Now, you believe me. You say you are my disciples. Now go and teach what I taught you, live out what I taught you, and make disciples. So here's my challenge to myself. Here's my challenge to you as the church. If you believe this, then maybe your resolution should just be one thing this year. Make disciples. Just one thing. Because if you get to the end of 2019 and you haven't intentionally made disciples, you're not a disciple. Because disciples always make disciples. God, thank you that you, you make disciples. You did it perfectly. You, you continue to do it. So, Father, may we be disciples who make disciples. We know the resurrection happened. We know that it's true. We also know that there will be Thousands upon thousands that will believe a lie that has been perpetuated time and time again for thousands of years. But I pray that that lie gets completely shattered by truth because once lies are exposed under the light, they cannot be unseen anymore and they cannot be believed as truth. God, I pray that we would be people, we would be disciples who make disciples, and that as we think and pray through what we can improve on and, and what we can do differently, I pray that it becomes of utmost importance for us to say that we believe in God the Father, we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in the Holy Spirit, because He's given us new life, and that we make disciples.